Welcome to the TaoofColorGrading.com interview series, evangelizing the art, craft, and business of color correcting films and video. Show notes, a free weekly newsletter, and our online color grading mentoring and training products can be found at TaoofColor.com. That's Tao with the letter T. We are proud to be sponsored by Flanders Scientific, developers of a terrific 24-inch 10-bit LCD. It's a color-critical reference monitor sold directly to and priced specifically for desktop colorists worldwide. An FSI's customer service, it is unrivaled. To get more information and find product reviews, visit TauofColor.com FSI. If you decide to buy from them, be sure to click through from our website or newsletter. It won't cost you an extra dime. But it lets FSI know that they should continue to support the Tau of Color. And you can keep getting this great content for free. Quick reminder about Tau of Color's Color Correction Masterclass. It is being expanded to include the newly released DaVinci Resolve 8. Now this is part two of our discussion with colorist and finisher Terence Curran. Terence is an avid symphony extraordinaire who has mastered the craft of curves-based color grading. In part two, we talk about file-based workflows, the future of our industry, the future of specialization, and how to survive in our industry. We're gonna jump right into the middle of the conversation where we left off, enjoy. They are right, of course, we're all moving to a file-based world. I mean, there's no doubt about right. that. And I mean, right. you look at the SR thing that's going on right now with uh, you know, the SR factory being shut down in Japan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, tape stock, I've heard of tape stock going for $8,500 for a case of, of 1060 SRs. Wow, I, I got to start selling some. I bought a bunch before because I, you know, I, I actually, you know, we always have some in stock, but I bought a bunch on the Monday after the earthquake just because I thought, you know, in case. Smart guy. We're not able to get any. Smart and then guy. by Tuesday, it was like, there's none available. I'm like, whew, that was close. Um, but even, you know, I've, we, we were talking to um, one of our tape reps, and he was telling us that even the other manufacturers, they're having problems sourcing some, some small little bits. Like you think about the cassette. And yeah. there are little bits that go in there that were coming from a factory out of Japan that shut down. And so all of a sudden, everything kind of comes to screeching halt until they resource all this stuff. Oh, it's, it, you know, we're just talking about our little part of the industry. There's microchip factories that are trash that are yeah. going to impact everybody because, it, you know, the chips that go into phones, the smartphones and everything else, the red camera even, yep. you know, are all impacted by um, this. So it's, it's going to be interesting. People so, go, oh, I'm, this will push file-based, but you go, well, how are you going to get cards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. But, you know, I, I definitely think that this is actually, pro this may be, we might look back on this in five years and say, yeah, this Kind of like how, you know, this recession has, uh, I think, finally put a stake in a lot of the weaker players in the big post houses. Yeah. Um, it might finally put a stake in tape-based workflows. Yes and no. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not saying that just because, obviously, I have tape machines. Um, I think it's because there's not an, at this point, there's not a better backup system there's not a better archive system well yeah actually i was going to ask you about that what do you use for archiving well currently we you know i mean obviously the client's masters go out on tape so we're not worried about that gotcha. we you know and if a client would fortunately we're not asked to archive their stuff we archive every project just we use bare drives you yep. know yep. uh and we do it just for ourselves you know in case if the client comes back a year from now and goes oh then we go you know 
hey, we have it. But I wouldn't trust that because three years from now, that drive might not start. A year from now, that drive might not start up. So, you know, if I if I needed to trust it, then I would go to LTO. Right. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's not a great backup process or archive process at this point in time. And, you know, that's why I'm saying we don't. I can take that one hour show and HD show and put it onto an HD cam master. And 10 years from now, you'll be able to watch that same one hour show off the HD cam master with all its original glory. Try and do that with any other storage media we have right now. Yeah. So to say the tape based media is gone, I don't know. I mean, I, I know, I remember when the Panasonic first announced P2 at the NAB years ago and I'm looking at this and you know, it was a, it was a wooden mock-up of the camera at that time. It was really funny in the booth. You know, they go, you know, you can't touch it, but I want to see it. No, 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 you can't. Okay. Um, but, you know, I was saying, well, so I don't understand, you know, what this, this chip at that time, I think they were going to be like 16 grand a piece or something silly for the chips. Yeah. It was nuts. Uh, they go, no, but that's not a problem because you're, you know, you're going to reuse the chip. So I'm like, okay, well, what do you, you know, where are you storing that? Well, you put it on a hard drive. And I said, what happens if the hard drive dies? That's not safe. And they go, well, you can, you can always record it to tape. And I'm like, well, then why don't I just shoot on tape? I mean, what the <laughs> hell? Come on, guys. You know, it's like, yeah. how, do you, how do you sell a concept that's not really a great concept? You know, I mean, yeah, okay, it's cheaper. You don't have to make the tape mechanism. But ultimately, how do you back that up then? So what we're going to see is that, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, there's going to be a whole lot of media that's created in the last, you know, 10 years that's just going to vanish. So let's talk about that for a moment as we talk about things vanishing, because I noticed on your LinkedIn uh, profile, um, you, there's a tweet up there where you tweeted the story about post-production services being a top 10 declining industry. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, a real treat. <laughs> what's that? That's a real treat, huh? Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on that? You, do you agree with that statement, that sentiment? Uh, Is our business I shrinking? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's what I, like I said, it's what I predicted back in the 90s. So it's not a big shock to me. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's less content. Obviously, there's more content out there. It's just that, you know, the the um, higher end finishing, you know, I mean, the, the, the area has been democratized. The tools are available to everybody. So you don't have that limitation anymore. And, you know, the quality, the only thing we have left to sell, again, like Alpha Dogs is selling the talent if the talent's not appreciated, then, you know, there is no more business for post-production. So I would say in the near-term future, talent is going to be the only thing that keeps post-production, the post-production industry alive. And in the long term, I don't know. If we don't educate the public into the quality or if the public doesn't eventually come around and go, you know what, I want to, I, I just want to watch something that's a little, you know, better, then right. we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> right. And... So when you look forward to someone, you know, let's say we're talking now to someone, well, it doesn't matter whether you're an industry professional now or just getting into the business. I mean, really, your differentiation really has to be uh, the bit when they talk about post-production services going out, dying, they're really talking about the big post houses. They're talking about the guys getting $400 an hour. They're not necessarily talking about the guys making 50 or $75 an hour. Um, well, yeah, no, because, I, because they can't track that. Right. You know, how are they going to track, you know, you making money in your house or something? They can't. You know, there's no way they, they can, you know, they can theorize, but they can't really track it. So all they can track is, you know, as you say, the bigger post houses and their purchasing and spending, et cetera. And, you know, as those places go down and they, they do keep going down, um, as they go down, then, you know, the industry, as far as being able to track, is disappearing. 
but you know, who are there less shows on television? No. Right. So obviously being done, it's being created somewhere. Um, a lot of production companies do their own in-house. Now, how is, how is this study going to track that? You know, let's say, you know, match frame video at its peak was doing a lot of different shows and a lot of those shows are being done in the production company's own house now on their own systems that they've purchased over the years. Now there's no way to track that because they're not tracking production companies as post-production companies. Right. Even though the, you know, the work is being done and the dollars are being spent on editors to run the gear, they're not being spent at a dedicated post house, which was trackable. So then let me ask you for some career advice for, for all of our listeners. If you're a, um, a colorist or an aspiring colorist, would you recommend, uh, do, do you think that specialization is still a way to go? Or as I read on an article the other day, someone talked about, you know, you talk about the jack of all trades and that jack is, is winning the race. Do you believe that's the truth? Um, I think hmm, that's winning the race. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I, I think the problem with having a, a jack of all trades and a master of none is that you have no masters left. Right. Um, you know, do we, you know, Philip and I had a whole show on this, you know, which is the, uh, is it, you know, is it good enough? And to me, the enemy of our industry is the, it's good enough, right. you know? So if everybody accepts mediocre quality, if that's okay, if that's acceptable from this point forward, then you, yeah, then you don't need any specialists. You don't need any masters of the trade anymore. But you, you know, if there's always going to be some people who want that thing that's better, you know, and my comparison was, um, you know, fine quality furniture. You used to be able to go to a furniture store, you know, almost any furniture store and, and you know, spend a lot of money and buy a handmade, you know, piece of furniture that would be in your family for the next four generations or five generations. You know, now you don't, you go to Ikea, you buy the crap and it's going to break in, you know, five years. Yep. Um, you know, Phillips contention is, you know, that's great because, you know, I move around a lot anyways. I don't want anything that, you know, is going to last a long time. Uh huh. And so, you know, I think, you know, for the mass market, that's the case. But then what happens if one day he decides, you know, this is the perfect place. I want to be here forever. I want a good piece of furniture. Now he doesn't have a choice anymore. See, and that's that's the problem is that when people do want quality, is it going to be available to them? Uh, that, so I guess that sort of the answer to that question w would answer the question about whether somebody should be a specialist or not. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot less call for it than more call for it. That's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because the other way of looking at this was, you know, before this democratization of color grading, you know, where we've got, you know, Da Vinci's coming out on a Mac. Who knows what's happening with some of these other big competitors? You've got Apple Color. You've got Avid integrating it inside you know, the timeline within the editorial tool. Right. And if you look back, there probably were only a couple hundred professional colorists worldwide. Yeah, exactly. Right? But right. that was only because it was so damn expensive to put together a color grading room. Right. And so, and it was, it was a guarded um, um, area. It was a black art. You know, it was. You, you can blame Holfish for uh, opening the door <laughs> on it. <laughs> I don't blame him. I thank him. No, I know. I'm, I'm being facetious. I no. know. Because he and I kind of hit this sort of at the same time from the same, you know, he had, he, he was lucky enough to have a colorist who showed him some tricks when he was on the symphony. And I had the same thing. I had a, a colorist at Matchframe who showed me a lot of things. And so, you know, we actually were lucky 
it, it, you know, to get that experience up front, um, which most people wouldn't be able to. And, you know, I wasn't going to go in to be a telecine operator, so right. I would have gotten it that way. So it was just a fluke that things lined up perfectly where, you know, seasoned professionals and the gear, you know, the gear was in my hand and the seasoned professional was willing to talk to me at the same time. So we both had, you know, we both benefited from that, that perfect uh, alignment. Well, and I think uh, online editors in general actually kind of make a pretty easy transition to color grading if they want, simply because, you know, like you, all through the 90s, uh, I had to get it right the first time. And, right. uh, and I, so I say I've been color grading since 1990, really. Well, yeah, uh, same, yeah, yeah, same here. I've, from the beginning, I've been doing it. Yeah. Uh, but which I mean, is why I, it's also why I hate green, you know, it's like <laughs> back in those days, like my natural tendency is to go as far away from green as possible. You know, I'm always cheating towards the red. Yeah, me too. And, and it's funny because now if I'm doing like a horror movie and I've got to make it green, it's like, ah, oh, I'm fighting all of my instincts <laughs> all the way through. You know, it's like, ah, oh, no. Oh. It's true. Well, you know, it's funny when skin tones look normal to me, I know I've made a mistake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've learned that. I'm like, you know what? It can if it looks right to me, I've got to back off because I just know. I know yeah. how I how I naturally want to do it. Right, right. Um, but getting back to that that, you know, a couple hundred colorists worldwide, I'm wondering now if we've got this democratization going on, if at the end of the result, we'll still have only a couple hundred full-time colorists worldwide uh, because, you know, good enough is what people are looking for and that means all we got to do is train editors to have a basic skill set. And the really fine art of the finesse of the color grade, uh, there is there going to be a call for that? You know, how big a call will there be for that? Uh, that's yeah, that's a good point. That's exactly you know I, that's where we're at now. Like I said, if you're flipping cable channels, you see that's where we're at right now. Oh yeah, you know uh, uh, there are shows that go on the air that don't even not even an established editor, assistant editors upres the show and out it goes. Yeah. Um, they're not getting any grade. They're not. I mean, it's obvious. You look at it and right. you're like, they just no care was given. Exactly. And this is only going to get worse with file-based delivery. So, yeah. um, uh, I, I, you know, I think that the 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 future is like you say. I think it's there's going to be a you know there's always going to be the specialist. There's always going to be the Stefan Sonnenfeld who people go, oh, you've got to go to Stefan, even though you know his. You know, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that is the, well, let me put it this way. I, I break color correction down into three parts. You know, to me, there's the um, get it legal. Yep. That's part one. Part two is get it even so that, you know, all the shots look, you know, match in a scene, for instance. And, you know, those first two steps, you can almost do, with the first step you can do mathematically. The second step you can almost do mathematically. But then the third step, and this is the part that separates, you know, what I consider a colorist from everybody who's calling themselves colorists, uh, is the the aesthetic part. You know, yeah. where you start making decisions. You start going, you know, if I cheat this over here to a little green, for instance, it's going to make this scarier. I mean, that is, you know, that's the true art of color correction, and that part is, you know, that's the part where most people don't go. About connect, making an emotional connection to your audience and thinking about the emotion of what it is you're doing. Exactly. You know, there's, and, and it's not because, you know, the first two steps are really objective. You can look and go, that's legal or it's not. Right. You can look and you can go, anybody can look and go, those shots match or they don't. Those are objective. There's no, you know, you, you can say it's absolutely a right or wrong situation. But once you get to the, the third part, it's all subjective, you know. There is no right or wrong to 
color correction beyond that. And, you know, it, it's how did it impact this person? Did what I do, uh, you know, add to that scene or, you know, add to the emotion of the scene or whatever? That is purely subjective. And because of that, I think there's still room in the mystique area for experts. And that's, you know, again, why somebody like Stefan Sonnenfeld is going to continue to command huge dollars um, probably forever because people go, well, you got to go to him. He'll save your movie. Right. Right. Even, even though. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. So now, um, I, I, should, I should be careful what I say now, right? <laughs> no, or Terrence, you know, or Terry Curran, he'll, he'll save your movie as well. There you go. Uh huh. Um, so now I, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, I actually did the color correction for, um, the screening master for, uh, a movie that, you know, it, it, it was really kind of poorly shot and a really poor transfer. And uh, they offlined at DNX 36 and they didn't even, you know, traditionally with the screenings, they would at least up res. They didn't want to up res, they just were using that. And they said, uh, and they didn't want to go to a symphony, they just wanted to use the media composer. And so I had to color correct in the media composer, <laughs> you know, one hand tied behind my back. Um, but, you know, the director just, loved me because I saved the look of it for the screening because it was, you know, it's a comedy, but it was really dark and da, 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 the way it was shot and transferred. So, you know, I did a lot of work and, and, you know, he was in heaven with the screening. And then I saw the movie when it came out and Stefan Sonnenfeld actually did the, the, you know, the final color correction. <laughs> uh, and I swear to God, the, the director must have walked in with mine and said, match this. <laughs> it was so funny. So I'm like, that's exact. And I knew the scene. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, look, he had to do this to make that look just like I did. You know, it was pretty funny. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. I, maybe it's just confirmation of your skills. Uh, or that, you know, there's a lot of mystique that's all BS still. Um, well, and I think, you know, the mystique comes from how tough, tough it was to get into and become a, uh, a colorist. I think that's yeah. where a lot of that came from. Yeah, I think, yeah, originally. But, yeah. Like, you know, now it's like, eh, why? Why is that part there? I don't know. Yeah. But um, again, I, I should say, I should just preface this with one thing is that, you know, again, having the years of experience tends to, you know, I don't think of that. You know, to me, it's so easy to do. I just go, oh, well, it's easy to color correct. Yeah. But when I try to teach somebody else, I realize, oh, shit, I know a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, so I may be a little, I, I, I may be a little flippant when I'm describing, you know, what we do, but, uh, you know, maybe it's harder than I think because, uh, the tools are just there now. They're part of my repertoire, and so I don't think about it. But, yeah, I guess it is, you know, that accumulation, I tend to forget that there's a lot of experience there I don't take, I take for granted. Well, there is, and, you know, and you grow with your software, and as the software gets more capable, you learn how to integrate new features, new tools. Someone comes in, you know, seven generations later of the software, and they're just throwing all of this in front of them, and it's tough for them to make sense of it. Right, right. Um, so if I was, if I wanted to come out to Hollywood and be, and color grade, uh, feature films, uh, what's it looking uh, like out there? Uh, don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, it's a, it's a shrinking field as we've, as we've said, right. uh, that field was hard enough to get into in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, pretty much if you change your name to Stefan Sonnenfeld, maybe right. you could, you could pull it <laughs> off, you know, but, um, or yeah, you no, date I, his daughter or something. Yeah, because it's going to be, I mean, think about this. You know, I've just spent $18 million, low-budget movie. I just spent $18 million on my low-budget movie, and, uh, you know, we've got to do this final DI color correction on it. 
you know, where should I go? I don't know. Let's pick up the phone book. Uh, no, <laughs> it's yeah. like, you've got to use this guy. He's the best. Okay. So how do you get to be that guy? You, you, that's the problem. It's the old catch 22 of you have to be that guy already to get to be that guy. Right. So if, well, first of all, I wouldn't recommend anybody get into our career now at any rate, but if somebody was just, you know, it's like, well, let me, let me put it this way. I used to, when I was teaching an editing class, I, I would always spend the first hour of the first class saying, trying to talk people out of the industry. <laughs> say, look, you know, if, if, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, you should go do it. Because, you know, to survive and prosper in this industry, you have to have the mindset that I just, there's nothing else I could do. Right. I mean, it's the only way because we go through, you, you know, we, it, it is so hard to survive in this industry and make a living in this industry um, that unless you're, you know, 150% doggedly determined that this is, you've got, you know, do this or die, you're not going to, you're not going to survive it. You're not going to make it. So that's what I would say. If somebody just said, well, the only thing I can do is color correct features. That's all I can do in my life. Well, then I'd say then if that was the case, then I would go to the nearest uh, film school and say, let me color correct your features. And right. just start, you know, getting the chops, you know, start working on those. And you, that would do two things. One, it gives you a lot of experience working, you know, with the tool sets, working with different conditions, working with different people, because, you know, a good 80% of our job is how we interact with the people. It is. Um, you know, it would give you the experience with that, A, and B, you know, you are effectively networking. Because if one of those guys becomes successful one day, you know, you've got an in. Right. And, you know, the other interesting thing, too, is, you can sit down and, and you can read all the books and you can do all the tutorials, but you know, in the end, there's nothing quite like having a real client with their own ideas come yeah. to you and ask you for things you would have never imagined trying to do. Absolutely. That's, that's why the, the tutorials are such a joke, you know, for me, it's like, <laughs> Hey, wait, towel color does tutorials. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can sit down and you can do this and it's like, it doesn't matter how, you know, how much you think you know the program. As soon as somebody walks and starts asking for stuff, it's, you, you'll, that's when you, don't, you realize you don't know anything. Yeah, you know? absolutely. No, and I that, completely agree. And, and how you handle that situation uh, is really what makes or breaks people in yeah. this industry. It's I true. mean, I'm sure you had your share of those, <laughs> those uh, moments. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, when I started out on, in the online world, um, absolutely. I think there's... You'd sit there and you'd you'd run through all the scenarios in your head, and you know I, I had the for good fortune of being an assistant for a while, so you know I had a good idea of what clients would expect and ask of you, and didn't realize how often they were what I thought they were asking wasn't what they were really asking, and you don't realize that until you're sitting in the seat and you're and you think you're giving them what they're saying, and you are giving them what they're saying and they're saying, but no 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 it's not right, and you have to learn how to read underneath. You have to learn what it is they're actually asking for. Right. Right. There's a, those are skill sets that, you know, you either, you know, have some of it intrinsically and learn to develop it or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known guys who could, who could read you the manual inside and out and you put them in front of a client and they just collapse. Exactly. Yes. I've seen, well, actually I know, I won't mention names, but there is a regular, pretty, popular instructor at, uh, uh, you know, the major, one of the major training centers out here, Video Symphony. It was uh -huh. a pretty popular uh, Abbott instructor. Um, and, you know, I took a couple of her classes in the early days. Incredibly good instructor. Uh, and 
uh, Matchframe ended up hiring her for a session one time, and it was a, a disaster. Yeah. It was the same thing, you know. It's like that. That it was one of those cases of, you know, those who can do. <laughs> yeah. Although you know, I, I will say that there is there is value in someone who can impart to you the fundamentals. Absolutely, um, a know, good teacher and, is a good teacher, but yeah, it doesn't mean it's a different be a good operator. Right, it's a different kind of communication. And, right, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, and we'll be we'll wrap this up now. And I, I just want to ask uh, how the rates are looking out there in, in LA for freelancers. I can tell you, you know, it's interesting because I've started entering more of a myself more of a freelance color grading market, and so I've surveyed again. It's been a while since I surveyed what freelance rates were going for editors. They mm -hmm. haven't changed in ten years. Yes. I mean, they yeah. are exactly what they were 10 years ago. And I'm thinking, wait a second, that's a pay cut. Is that what you're seeing yes. out there in LA? Absolutely. Actually, even uh, a little below in some cases. Only the, you know, only the guys who really have uh, a good following have maintained their rates where they were basically 10, year 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. But others are less. Yeah, especially um, on the entry level side. Absolutely. Once you hit like five years and you can kind of get to be considered... Um, you know, almost like a supervising editor type of person. Mm -hmm. um, then you can kind of hold on to that rate, I guess. Uh, that's that's what I've been seeing out here. Yeah, and I don't see it getting, it's not going to get any better. Yeah. You know, uh, the problem, you know, this is part of the cost of democratizing an area is that, you know, now that more people can do it, there's going to be people undercutting people always. And that, you know, that that leads to, you know, you, you go and you do a, a, a reality show and, and on this show they go, well, I'm sorry, we just have such a low budget. And so all the established editors are like, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to cut my rate. Well, somebody will come along and do it. Yeah. And, and and then, you know, if that show continues and for another season, that person keeps working, you know, and then that producer goes to another show and maybe this guy goes with them. And so that's the new rate. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's the problem. Uh, you know, until you find a stabilization point, there's, you know, at some point you get to where, okay, well, nobody's willing to work for less than this. Who can do the job? Right. And we haven't hit that yet, I don't think. No, I think we're a little ways away from that happening. Although I will say that I think, you know, one of the things I'm glad that I find I enjoy color grading so much is, is that it does give you the ability to having a specialization of some sort does give you the ability to kind of step out from the crowd a yeah. little bit. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That's, you know, it's, it's been good for me. I mean, yeah. and part of, part of why, you know, somewhere back in there, I real well, I think it was with the symphony. I realized that I preferred my temperament is better suited to finishing than, um, offline. Yeah. Just, you know, like I love offline. I love, you know, the creative part of offline editing, but I don't like dealing with the clients on that end yeah. because, you know, the, you, 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 you put your, all into making something and you go god i've made it perfect you know as good as you can make it and then you send it and some executive pisses all over it because they just you know they have to you know to justify their position or whatever and it's like this is so incredibly frustrating to me on the other hand when they come in you know they always come in and they see the finished product when you've done color correcting and then you're like oh my god that's so fantastic you've done such a great job you made it look so good you know what i mean so i you, know exactly what you mean you're always winning in yes. finishing. Yes. And in offline, you're always losing. Even, it doesn't matter how good a job you do, you're always losing, it seems like, you know? Well, and not only that, it's, you know, the classic, I mean, there's no professional editor alive who doesn't have to kill some babies for yes. their programs to exactly. meet some stupid network executives, whatever preference. 
Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. I don't have the temperament for that when I found something that I do have the temperament for. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I love, and one of, um, one of the things I save, you know, on my sales page for my training is one of the great things about color grading is, is it, you can have the same impact emotionally and visually as say the editor or the DP or the director, um, yes. which is, it's one of those few skill sets where, where you, you actually get to sit down with the lead creatives, interact with them one-on-one, and really make a difference in their programming. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, all right, so we'll finish with that up note. <laughs> as, we, as we talked about some bumming things today, Terry, thank you very much. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with a downer interview. No, 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 it was great, actually. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I mean, uh, I don't know why I hadn't... Th- put you on my initial list of people to talk to about color grading. And then one of my listeners, Josh Petok, came to me and he said, you really got to interview Terry and talk about curves. And I like slapped my head because you've actually been kind of a hero to me. Uh, we both, you, <laughs> uh, you have been, you've started Alpha Dogs about the time that, that I started at the time, Apple Pie Editorial. And, um, and I, I've been watching you track in the digital service station and we didn't even talk about the editor's lounge or monthly meetings uh, out there in, in L.A. And uh, and and so I've, I've really enjoyed watching how your business has grown and how you've you've managed to not only kind of maintain, but build in an, an environment where a lot of people are disappearing. And I, I really I really do um, tip my hat to you for that. Well, thank you. I, you, I don't you know, I, I I'm a, I guess the way the way I look at it is, uh, in, in editors' lounge is a perfect example. Um, you know, if there's not enough work for all of us, then we should all just quit, anyways. And so we've kind of been very open from the beginning, and and I always try to help other people. And you know, some people go, "You're crazy, man! You're helping your competition." But I, you know, I just don't view it that way. I really, it's, you know, I, I can sleep at night. Yeah, I'm I'm not worried about somebody coming to get me or something. So. It's not a zero sum game. Exactly. Yeah. So very good. Well, Terry Curran, thank you very much for joining us here on the Tower Color. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. Are you going to be at NAB? No, I'm not going to. I'm actually, I got booked on a job. I'm doing a documentary next week. So yeah, won't be at NAB. That's all right. That's right. You'll be better off working anyways. I will be. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be very happy to do it. And then I'll check my Twitter feed uh, at night. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. That's a wrap with Terrence. I'll try and get him back in a few months for a follow-up interview on the effect of FCP 10 on his business, see what he thinks about the new Resolve 8, and talk more about Avid-based color grading and finishing. This podcast has been brought to you by TauofColor.com. I encourage you to leave comments about this interview on its blog posting. And if you enjoyed this, you'll definitely enjoy our free weekly color grading newsletter, which you can sign up for from our homepage. And of course, the Tau of Color has its own very unique project-based color grading mentoring program. I encourage you to check that out at its web address, masterclass.tauofcolor.com. My name is Patrick Inhofer. Thanks for your time.